0: from the studios of KPCW in Park City. It's This Green Earth, a weekly talk show about the environment and our relationships with it. I'm Chris Cherniak
1: and I'm Claire Wiley.
0: Well, winter poses significant challenges for golden eagles, including reduced food availability and increased competition. In Utah's West Desert, the nonprofit Hawk Watch International and the Department of Defense have undertaken a winter feeding research project to investigate whether providing carrion during the winter months helps stabilize population levels.
1: Steve Slater, Conservation Science Director with Hawk Watch, is going to join us in the first part of the show to talk more about this program and other Hawk Watch-related events and activities going on in the area. And then in the second half of the show, we're going to return with the topic of biomass and wildfire mitigation. Andrew Hayden is going to join us. He is the founder of Wisewood, a company that uses biomass science and technology to help mountain towns control wildfires.
0: Environmental awareness and education. That's what this green earth is all about. Stay with us. Welcome to This Green Earth weekly talk show about our relationships with and impacts upon the environment i'm chris cherniak and i'm claire wiley and joining us in the first part of this show is steve slater he is the conservation science director with hawk watch international and he's here to talk about hawk watch uh, who they are and and also a, a program uh going on in the west desert here in the state with respect to golden eagles steve thank you so much for joining us this morning on this green earth
2: well, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here.
0: All right. Well, let's start, get some general background. Tell us a little bit about Hawk Watch, their uh, origins and mission.
2: Sure. Um, so Hawkwatch International began in 1986. So we've been around for nearly 40 years now. Um, and we're based here, have an office here in Salt Lake City, but um, do work around the globe. Um, we're an international organization with programs in um, Africa and South America, but uh, do a lot of our work here in um, our backyard in Utah and in the West. Um, and really, we started as a migration monitoring organization. So raptors in the fall have this um, interesting uh, behavior where they you know, they migrate along ridge lines because of the updraft from the winds that encountered the westerly winds. And so... Uh, it provided an opportunity for, for researchers to count and census raptors to get a sense of their populations. And so that's that's how we began where our name comes from, Hawk Watching, um, Observing Raptors on Migration. Um, and from there, we've continued to evolve over the decades with you know conservation research and education programs. We do a lot of community and, and school programs and, and outreach in addition to the various research programs and conservation efforts that we do
0: yeah i'm I'm from back east and there's two locations I've visited. Uh, one in Pennsylvania the the exact name of it escapes me. It might yeah, it literally Mountain. be Hawk Mountain, yeah. Uh, right. uh, an important I guess migratory uh, way station or area where, like you say they hawks or raptors use on their way uh, migrating north or south. And then even down in uh, the Cape May area, you know you might see hawks and other raptors mm-hmm. migrating down with <laughs> all the other birds. Uh, going Mm -hmm. through that area. Are there locations like that, similar to that, uh, out here in the West?
2: Yeah, there's definitely a a lot more sites out East just because of the population density there and people looking for these sites. But um, Hawk Watch really was founded to fill that gap in the West. Um, There weren't sites like that when Hawk Watch was founded. And so our original founder um, found a site um, near, he was going to Utah State and so Went up into the Wellsville Mountains um, north of us, and and found a site there where thousands of birds pass every year. Um, we have long-running sites that we count um, south of Wendover in Nevada, where we see you know, twenty thousand some birds in a season, and hmm. also capture birds and band them. Um, but we have sites now um, along the Pacific Northwest and down in Texas and uh, various places in the West where you can and see this this fall migration.
0: I know the answer to this question is going to be depends but uh um wh- how do uh, migratory patterns vary do do hawks fly great distances like you know some birds we know fly thousands of miles do, what is their migratory patterns like
2: yeah um and exactly right it does vary uh, swainson's hawks are one of the longer migrators in, in peregrine falcons um, they can go from you know anywhere in in north america where they their nesting to um, clear to down to the southern end of South America, so making fairly large migrations. A lot of our raptors don't go as far. We have these smaller raptors called, you know, sharp-shinned, sharp-shinned hawks and mm-hmm. troopers hawks that may come from, you know, to the north of us in Canada or the northern U.S., and, and they may just go to, you know, the southern U.S. or into um, central, south, northern South America for different species that we have. Um, Vultures can go into northern South America. Um, For golden eagles, um, they, you know, we have a lot of, for example, a lot of resident golden eagles that live here year round, but then in the winter, we'll see an influx of birds from further north that will winter here in Utah, Wyoming, and other places. So it is really, really variable depending on the species and and what they need in the winter. Um, If you're, you know, an insectivore, uh, you know, an owl or a small raptor that feeds on insects and small um live prey you might have to go to you know say Mexico for example where you're going to be able to find that in the winter versus an eagle that can feed on rabbits and other things uh, and make use of carrying in the winter time
1: and I'm curious um in the research that you do what does this inform for conservation why are these birds such a great lens for conservation
2: yeah great question um because raptors are so wide-ranging and they you know do cover large landscapes and uh, and then they're, they're top or their apex predators so they you know they feed on other animals they can they can tell us a lot about the the health of the environment um, golden eagles are a great example that's a species i've spent a lot of my career studying um, you know they have territories that are you know many kilometers in in diameter and that's the area that they need to find enough you know, jackrabbits and ground squirrels and other things to feed themselves and then to feed their nestlings. And so, you know, if we have increase in wildfires due to climate change or human activity, um, or if we have shrub and habitat degradation um, at large scales, you're gonna have these um, somewhat gradual losses and declines in prey, but that's gonna, for a species like a golden eagle, that requires, you know, hundreds of prey items per year to to raise its young, um, whether or not they're able to be successful with raising their young and, and given years or over uh, a longer time frame tells us a lot about the health of the landscape that they're living in and whether, you know, there's uh, enough food there. And then we also have gotten in a lot of research lately where we're doing you know, sampling, taking blood samples when we are banding and doing other research activities, which can tell us a lot about exposure to, you know, are they, are they getting mercury from, you know, Birds that they're feeding on off the Great Salt Lake—are they being exposed to lead from other sources in the environment, from humans and other things? Mm. So they really do provide a, a great study species to tell us about um, our, our wider landscape health.
0: Well, I'll, I'll, that question begs itself: Are they? Are you finding um, pollutants of lead that or contamination in their in their blood, like mercury so, or PFOs or PFOS or, or such? such things like that
2: right so so we have with the golden eagles we've been involved in a research project where we're sampling the blood in the nestlings so when they're pretty young to see what they're being exposed to as they're being fed and and we do see elevated levels of lead in certain areas closer to humans um, elevated levels of mercury um, around the great salt lake and other water bodies um, and and then other some other heavy metals as well at, at lower concentrations but unfortunately we've we've known that lead levels spike in a, a number of raptors in the fall and winter because of of hunting activities which um there are alternatives to using lead, but a number of hunters still use lead and so hmm. there's a there's this correspondence when uh, if for example you take a deer you you typically dress it in the field and then you leave got piles and other things behind that still have lead fragments in them and, and eagles and other scavengers in the winter will take advantage of these and so that, those are just some of the ways that they're being exposed to some of these contaminants
0: yeah it's a unfortunate consequence of in some ways like free food hey, there, hey. there's a there's an animal dressed out the deer that's been dressed out and there's a source of carrying for it um, but there's also the consequence potentially of lead pellets or other lead fragments you like you say uh, uh, within that same animal. Um, so let's, let's turn our attention now to the the golden eagle. First of all, t- tell us about the golden eagle. Is, is it one of the most spectacular, uh, raptors around? I, I mean, I, that's, that's my answer. Sure. Yes. Yeah.
2: Right. I, I certainly would say so. I, again, as somebody who spent uh, most of their 17 years at Hawkwatch studying golden eagles and having that privilege, um, yeah they're definitely my favorite raptor and they're very impressive for a number of reasons um they're they're our largest hunting bird of prey I mean, we have condors which are also very you know large 10 11 foot wingspans but golden eagles can have seven foot wingspans and um, again top of the food chain um the research that we've done we we see everything from jackrabbits to deer and antelope fawns to badgers to um various snakes and so that anything that occurs out in their habitat can be potential prey for them um, they're very powerful um very long-lived um, they can live up to 40 years based on the mm. you know the longest banded bird that's been found um out there and we we put transmitters on on these birds to see where they go and the threats they face and just to see how wide-ranging they are we've transmitted birds mostly from utah and they go you know everywhere from canada to mexico and all points in between east and west uh in in the western u.s and so just very impressive birds um, very powerful large talons um and yeah just at the at the top of the food chain as far as raptors and uh and, and aerial predator goes
0: what's a a good way to kind of discern that hey i'm looking at a golden eagle not necessarily a hawk or, or a bald eagle. Is there a certain uh, profile that they have in the sky or uh, wing flapping yeah. movements? Or what's it, how do I tell?
2: Well, generally with a golden eagle, just because of their, their huge size, that will distinguish them from other hawks. But we do have um, quite regularly people will see turkey vultures and mm-hmm. when they're still here in the summer and fall, and they're a similar size. But turkey vultures will hold their wings and what's called a dihedral this slight v and they kind of rock in the wind whereas golden eagles have a very flat wing um profile um and these very long kind of straight wings um which distinguish them from buteos, which have more which are our hawks are red-tailed hawks and other things which have more rounded wings um you know smaller things like falcons have more pointed wings so there's a number of of markers like that and then if if we do have bald eagles here as well and so um, young bald eagles can have um, brown heads and mm. be confused with golden eagles occasionally but their their head size and their bill and kind of the way they have um, some um, model white markings differs between the golden and bald eagles for those that are um, more um, into birding and distinguishing those characteristics
1: and with golden eagles what is their population like mm. is it uh, in decline is it doing all right where do they sit
2: yeah so you know bald eagles many people know have had a you know just a wonderful success in recovery with the Endangered Species Act and um, banning of DDT they were very low numbers in the 60s and 70s and now you know they've been removed from the Endangered Species Act and we have well over 300,000 some birds um, in the US Golden Eagles unfortunately um, we have only a, less than 40,000 Golden Eagles in all of the United States and we probably have a few thousand breeding pairs in Utah we, we get a few thousand additional show up in the wintertime. Um, overall, um, they're considered stable, but potentially declining, and our, our migration trends show declines for Golden Eagles. Um, and, and the real concern for Golden Eagles is that um, there's been a lot of research from ourselves and other partners where we've compiled uh, just a wealth of transmitter data from hundreds of birds and banding data from the past decades, and um, we found that uh, almost three quarters of mortality of birds after their first year for golden eagles is from human causes so mm. electrocution because of their huge wingspan mm. they can touch more than one wire so they get electrocuted at hmm. high rates um, shooting still unfortunately is um, pretty prevalent for eagles just from a lack of understanding and, and misconception um, uh, collisions with cars um, and wind turbines um, with the growth of renewable energy um, and, and things like that are unfortunately these what we call anthropogenic mortality it, right. is really high for golden eagles.
1: So you talked about um, the pairs. I'm interested about their mating. Do they pair up like mm-hmm. uh, maybe a crane would, or do they um, go about <laughs> switch partners? Switch partners, partners right? yeah. Or are they yeah. lifelong partners? They're
2: generally they're generally considered monogamous, so we'll have pairs last for you know decades and use huh. the same nest uh or two they they all they often have alternate nests that they'll switch between in one larger territory but um one of the things that we've been doing is putting cameras um, on the cliff face near the nest and we can see all the different food items that are being brought in and, and how the nestlings develop over time and any any threats that they face that way um, and so these are motion sensitive cameras that take a picture whenever the birds come and go or the nestling moves um and you can see from year to year like some of the the eagles generally are brown with these golden napes. That's how they get their name. And they, you know, superficially they look very similar, but some of them will have a, a particular, um, a white feather on this one spot on their shoulder or on, on the crown. And you'll see the same bird, um, year after year, the same female and same male. Um, and from um, observations in general, they, they appear to be monogamous and holding the same territory. Occasionally, you know, if one of them dies, of course, they'll, they'll take a, a new mate. Um, but yeah.
0: We're speaking with Steve Slater. He's Conservation Science Director at Hawk Watch International. And we're talking about Hawk Watches programs, et cetera, but uh, Golden Eagles in particular. Um, And now let's look into this project going on or this research project going on in Utah's West Desert with respect to Golden Eagles. And interesting, the Department of Defense, can you talk a little bit about the project?
2: Yeah, so... Um, we've been researching golden eagles in the West desert for, uh, a few decades now. And our, our research has kind of followed what we're learning. And so, you know, we were tracking the nesting birds and, 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 monitoring the nest territories out there, um, for quite some time. And the military has some fairly large land holdings out there the Utah test and training range where Hill air force flies to the west of the great salt lake to do, you know, um, Air Force training uh, and then the Dugway Proving Ground to the south um, where there's a lot of training and and, uh, ground exercise and drone training and other things and and both of these large properties are situated right in the midst of a bunch of BLM land in the west desert um, and have you know a lot of uh, mountain and cliff and desert habitat that's perfect eagle habitat so the military also has a, a mission to protect the environmental resources Uh, While they go about their training exercises and they have management plans for how to protect um, their resources, and so we've partnered with them over the past few decades now to help um, specifically understand the Eagles on their property. There's quite a few territories on these properties nesting there and seemingly doing fairly well because the military only uses a small portion of the landscape that they, you know, basically control and Keep other activities. You know, there's not um, OHV use. There's not recreational shooting. There's not um, all these other activities. Mm-hmm. So they're, in some ways, they're they're closed um, areas, for, except for these small footprints where they do their training. Um, but we've helped them monitor the eagle populations, and and part of their program, they've supported our work in the, the area surrounding, so they can have context for um, how the eagles are doing in the larger West Desert and landscape around where they do their their work in training and so we've been fortunate to have them as a, a partner on this and help fund this research and the, the tracking of the nest and the color banding and tracking of eagles over the past um, few decades and then most recently we've as we've been putting transmitters on eagles and nestlings and they leave the nest and, and a bird dies or or survives um, and, and and moves around to the landscape we learn about the The issues they're facing and one of the things that we saw with this transmitter data from the eagles is that um one a lot of eagles were leaving the west desert once winter would come presumably because they couldn't find enough food because of shrub loss and other things Hmm. and were being struck by cars in like central utah and areas where there's an abundance of dead deer um, along the roadway just because these are wintering areas and they're being struck at higher rates and so they were going to take advantage Uh, that resource um, and being struck themselves when they would gorge on these dead animals and then not be able to fly away quick enough. Um, And so for us, that kind of connected the dots that um, the habitat in the West Desert might not be supporting eagles, even though a lot of our birds were sticking around in the winter in the West Desert, and and some of them starving, Um, we would recover them in the winter um, from starvation. And so this brought about connecting these two different ideas that there's a wealth of uh, roadkill that is um, not really being used for anything other than ending up in landfills or just rotting on the side of the road or attracting scavengers into dangerous zones along mm-hmm. these busy roads and so we've we've worked to move uh, roadkill and other carrion into the west desert into areas that are known to be wintering areas for eagles from our, our birds our transmitted birds and and, and su- supplementing them with this um, source of food in the winter when, you know, their live prey is just not as available. They're you know either hibernating or just at lower abundance or under the snow. And so this is an attempt to get them through these lean months in areas where we've had a lot of habitat degradation. And one other piece of the story is that there's been this uh, disease called rabbit hemorrhagic disease um, uh, that's been introduced from Europe. That's really decimated our jackrabbits, which are kind of the historic core prey item for eagles and so this is um, somewhat of an emergency um, measure to help get them through these years While this disease is playing out in the rabbit population and also um, while we're seeing um, low reproduction in the eagles from our monitoring efforts to try to help them survive at higher rates through the winter and also have um, more birds attempt nesting after um, being in good fitness um, after the winter ends.
1: And you do have an event coming up that people actually can get involved with to see how mm-hmm. this works. Can you tell us about that?
2: Yeah, so we'll have a presentation by one of our scientists, uh, Cody Allen, on Thursday at noon. Um, uh, so you can sign up through our website at HawkWatch.org to join that event um, through um, uh, virtually. And uh, we'll give a, a longer overview of the history of the eagles in the area and what we've learned and and why we're doing this work and and how we're measuring our our what we're putting on the landscape and the eagles use um you know for example we have cameras that are taking photos of the eagles foraging on, on the roadkill we're providing and and we weigh everything we put out there to to track the benefit and so they'll go into more depth of all the nuts and bolts of of that research and and also share some really fantastic and compelling photos of eagles interacting with the not only the the roadkill and carrion that they're feeding on but other scavengers that show up um, like coyotes we've got photos of of eagles basically defending carcasses from coyotes um, which are really amazing we've got bobcats that will hang out on on, on camera just stuffing themselves for days on end um, and so just yeah there'll be some interesting photos from the work as well as just the the future of the project and and how people can help support it.
0: All right, Um, we just got maybe one more minute or so, but I I wanted to go back to um, their migratory patterns with respect to climate change. In a warming Mm -hmm. world, are, are their migratory patterns changing? or more of these golden eagles who used to say, oh, if I'm going to fly south to this location in uh, Southern Arizona or Mexico. Are they saying, you know what? It's not too bad here. I think I'll just stay <laughs> stick around the West desert. Uh, is there any evidence of that?
2: Well, we, we certainly expect there are going to be changes like that, um, where what we call it stopping, where birds are necessarily not going as far south as they used to. And so, um, we may actually see more overwintering birds in, in Utah and Wyoming, and other um, kind of more mid-latitude western states in the future. Birds that went, you know, further into southern Utah and, and New Mexico and other areas may end up staying a little bit further north because um, there isn't as much snow or it's warmer. Um, we've also seen that in general with our migration trends. Just to tie back to kind of our original, um, how Hawkwatch started, where. Um, some of the counts for species are, are are now the peaks, peak numbers are getting a little bit later. Um, some birds appear to be staying a little bit further north. So that affects kind of counts at different sites. Um, but, you know, all those things, uh, it, it's great. And on one hand that the birds are able to adjust what they're doing because they are, you know, they're not bound to the ground like some other species that can't respond to climate change as easily. Mm. Um, but there does open up. You know this risk that even though we have maybe milder winters on average that you can still have these pretty extreme events that if birds stay further north they can end up getting trapped in some areas or have a mismatch in resources where there's potential for catastrophic you know die off and and threats like that so that's our our big concern i think with these these shifts that are kind of happening right now and and how those are going to play out into the future
0: all right well we we got to wrap up it was really interesting uh chatting with you steve slater conservation science director with hawk Watch international real quick website
2: yeah, hawkwatch.org
0: hawkwatch.org steve as always thank you for uh joining us this morning on this green earth
1: thank you steve
0: thanks for having me all right let's take a break when we come back we'll turn our attention to biomass and its potential to pro- provide us as an alternative fuel source uh, energy source uh we'll be speaking with andrew hayden he's the founder of the company wisewood it's this green earth we'll be right back
1: and you are listening to this green earth i'm claire wiley
0: and i'm chris cherniak
1: and now we're going to turn our attention to biomass we're going to be speaking with andrew hayden who is one of the nation's foremost experts in biomass systems and technology and also the founder of wisewood hi andrew
3: hi claire thanks for having me
1: yeah thanks for being on the show well i think uh let's just start
3: with uh the definition of biomass. Sure well biomass is any um material that is uh carbonaceous material that grows and is uh from the earth essentially so it's woody uh woody material straw uh can also be uh byproducts of agricultural uh production like manure things like that um, but we focus on uh, solid biomass in the form of uh, wood chips, which is the primary source of biomass uh, today.
0: okay, and these are this is uh wood that's primarily well, for the lack of a better term dead wood, let's say, yeah, so
3: biomass, the major source of biomass is waste wood. so yeah. it comes out of uh, primary manufacturing facilities like sawmills and so forth but increasingly in the west it's coming off of uh forest restoration uh, projects that are implemented to reduce wildfire risk so that's the other major source that's uh currently available in the in the u.s
0: uh do uh, say just focusing on trees per se because that's probably our primary source of potentially for for biomass out here in utah out in the west are there Trees that burn uh, with different energy levels or BTUs, some burn better or provide more BTUs than others?
3: Yes, within a reason. So uh, within a range, I should say. Yeah. The average BTU per pound of all wood is in the 8,000 8, um, BTUs per pound. And it ranges from about 7,500 to 8,500. So it's all pretty close in that range. And straw is actually... Fairly similar. So it's huh. actually um, right around there. Uh, some, some, some woods like juniper that have oils, uh, eucalyptus might burn a little bit hotter with a little more energy.
0: Right. But that's it. Now I'm, I'm going like jump into the technology probably. But, but oily woods can also present a problem per se, maybe, uh, in a biomass burning system. Or do uh, or are uh, they just benefit? Really? No, okay. I just think about burning, yeah, burning you know, black, burning dark. You know, they they might have a uh, more particulates to them associated with them. Right. I think that's uh, those are common
3: ideas, mostly because I think everyone's um, primary uh, experience with biomass in the U.S. at least is with a wood stove. Yeah. So you, you buy different kinds of wood and you and you burn them, or you have a fire pit and you see how they burn. But the technology today is really advanced, so it's you know computerized controls, checking constantly, monitoring the combustion and uh, adjusting to make sure everything's burning extremely clean. So um, part of that's that perception is a holdover from you know just. Wood stoves that we're all familiar
0: with. <laughs> yes. Well, having lived out in California, I knew like when you mentioned eucalyptus, that was kind of like the number one tree that people were most concerned with with respect to uh, wildfires because they would burn. They would burn quickly. They burn hot, and as you say, because they were kind of oil rich. So there was there was that element to them.
3: Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Which is all the more reason to you know, um, preemptively thin some of those materials out before they, before they go up in yeah. a wildfire and, and use them for, for energy.
0: Okay, so let's turn towards the technology. Um, you know, uh, yeah, get us farther away from that, that typical idea of uh, wood-burning stoves and all we're doing is just throwing wood into a, into a furnace and burning it and boiling water and producing energy. Is there more to the technology than that?
3: Um, uh, there can be. So there's, uh, a couple, there's multiple ways to use the biomass for energy. The uh, simplest way obviously is your wood stove or your campfire. Yeah. Um, but stepping up from that to the more modern systems, um, you would, you would use, uh, uh, what's called a phase combustion system. So it's got a primary combustion phase and a secondary combustion phase in a, in a furnace that then transfers the heat to hot water and the water then is transferred to uh your building and other buildings around through the in the form of hot water so that would be um biomass heating or district heating which is very common in in europe um and then going on from there you could uh produce higher temperature uh steam and run a turbine and that would all be on the combustion side and then Increasingly, there's gasification systems which convert the wood to a a gas Hmm. similar to a natural gas Um, and they use that to run an engine, which um, uh, produces both heat and electrical power at the same time. So that's increasingly uh, the direction things are going.
1: So um, in conjunction to where we live and Uh, these mountain towns that are looking for ways to mitigate wildfires. How does this play a role, this technology? Well,
3: mountain towns are essentially the perfect uh, location for this technology. And we see that or I've seen that firsthand in the in the Alps. So, for example, in Austria, all those small mountain towns in austria and switzerland pretty much all have these systems so they have uh in austria alone they have 2,300 biomass uh central biomass facilities that provide district heating to the buildings uh, and resorts near them so essentially every every town in the alps has one of these um and they you know decided years ago that it was the best uh option for them given that they Really don't have fossil fuels, and uh, local renewable that was uh, you know indigenous to them was the was forest material. So they've implemented this in a, in a big way and continue to expand it. And I think the U.S., um, especially the Rocky Mountains, where we have you know our own pr- um, fossil fuel uh, resources, natural gas, and so forth, uh, we haven't had so far to look at this because we've got uh, we've had cheap cheap affordable fossil fuels. But as we as incur, increasingly the mountain towns and resorts look to uh, become carbon neutral, go, uh, you know, essentially uh, go green, they are looking for an alternative to natural gas and biomass is one of the, uh, really the best op- options they have.
0: We're speaking with Andrew Hayden. He is the founder of the company Wisewood. We're talking about biomass and biomass systems. So Andrew, uh, talk, uh, explain to us a little bit about Wisewood, who's, who's, what's that all about?
3: Yes. So, uh, I've started Wisewood about uh, 12 years ago, uh, just essentially as a consulting company and increasingly, uh, grew into designing and building these systems. So I had done my graduate work, uh, over in Sweden and learned about biomass energy and district heating and, uh, really didn't I thought I knew a lot about sustainability, but didn't had never seen these systems and didn't know what they were. And as I got deeper into it, I realized that it was something that, you know, we could take advantage of in the US. Um, so that's really the impetus was trying to bring this model of local uh, local energy production to the US sort of distributed generation using uh, locally available resources and the uh, economic development that comes from that, which is another part of the equation.
1: And when you say the model, sorry, can you explain what you mean by that? Uh, The
3: model is uh, local using uh, biomass that you can harvest locally in a modern clean energy generation system that serves your local community. So essentially, in uh, in Europe, most of the district energy systems are actually owned as cooperatives uh, by the landowners in the region. So they they invest in it, build it, and then they operate it and provide the uh, fuel from their private lands. So just seeing how, what a positive benefit that had uh, as a supplemental income for uh, farmers and foresters in the, in that region uh, was what got me excited since I was studying uh, rural economic development when I was over there.
0: So here in, in Park City, literally starting today, there is a wood pile burning going on by the city under a very controlled setting uh, Piles mm-hmm. of dead wood have been collected over the summer in different locations around the uh, around the outskirts of the city and and today they're in you know the following days are they're burning them um, talk to walk us through how a biomass system could be employed um, uh, effectively you know versus just burning the the piles of wood in place what what would a system look like
3: sure so for uh for a mountain town like park city um the the most direct and straightforward way to use the material would be to um build a small facility um somewhere in town or near town mm-hmm. uh, and that would combust the uh, wood cleanly and send the heat to existing buildings that have natural gas boilers you know in their mechanical room you would uh, pipe the heat over to them and take over for those boilers Hmm. and instead of burning the wood in a pile you would pick it up uh, and chip it and chip it into you know chips about two to three inches large and transport that material to the central facility where it would become the fuel for your hotels and town uh buildings and municipal buildings so that is the simplest um most efficient way to go because you, you you essentially get 90 percent efficiency with that
0: right and the the chipping and- process um increases the i guess the fuel efficiency burning rate or so
3: uh, it allows you to handle it in an automated way. So okay. the beauty of these modern systems, you know, compared to a wood stove, which people think of as a manual device where you're loading fuel and taking out the ash, these, once you put the wood chips in the uh, in the fuel bay or the hopper, uh, it's completely automatic from there. So, mm-hmm. you know, once a week you might put the wood chips there, and then the the machines, you know, handle the material from there and take it and and use it without any uh, any hands-on. So it's uh, much more efficient in terms of both uh, operational labor, but also, as you say, you get better and cleaner combustion because the fuel is metered into the, into the firebox uh, right. as needed. Right.
1: And here in the U.S. Um, in the Rocky Mountains and in the West, where have you employed this and where have some of these communities seen the benefits or have you done this in a uh, nearby mountain town?
3: So, so far we've done projects in Washington, Oregon, California, Idaho, and Alaska, and we've been making trips out to Colorado and, and, the Rockies and Montana. We've done, um, some plans, some feasibility studies out there, uh, out where you guys are, but we haven't yet implemented one. So we are, uh, you know, tr- increasingly making trips out there to, to find folks who might want to do this. Um, and one of those was recently at the mountain towns conference we were invited by powder corp who were uh, we were currently in construction of one of these systems for mount bachelor in oregon and uh, it's just like i described so it's they're using uh, wildfire thinnings off of the local deschutes national forest and then they're uh, heating all the lodge buildings taking over for their propane boilers and so we, you know, as in, talking with Powder, and they invited me to come speak at their at their event at their session, and I just we got a great feedback from from local folks there throughout uh, throughout the Rockies. So I was chatting with folks in Colorado, Utah, and I think they are all starting to see that this might be, you know, a good solution for them. So so far we haven't uh, done something, uh, haven't implemented a project in the Rockies, but we're hopeful to do one soon.
1: And uh, I actually did attend uh, the tail end of this and and what was interesting to me is that the footprint can be fairly small for these facilities, but what is happening is even in the construction of them uh, and their overall look and feel, they integrate them into the communities and you had shown some examples. So is that something that's important to you to keep the footprint small and to also um, the aesthetic of it?
3: Yeah, so that's absolutely, um, a, you know, an important part of it to to, to really show that it is an integrated um, uh, technology that integrates with uh, the society and culture that it's in. So, in the Alps, um, they go above, above and beyond. So they'll have you know public competitions to design the design the plant. Uh, they put a lot of glass so you can as you walk by, you can see the equipment um and it sort of becomes the energy center of the town and and it's usually municipally owned so then it's almost it's a public building essentially
1: and you and said the that, mount bachelor sorry go ahead
3: okay oh go ahead
1: no i was just oh, gonna just, say uh, that, when we the, sorry
3: when we did the design for mount bachelor the forest service uh was a part of that so we submitted the designs from local architects to the forest service and they commented on on the look and feel, so that it matched the uh, aesthetics that the Forest Service likes to see on on their on their land. Since Mount Bachelor leases their land from the right. Forest Service,
1: and the other thing that I thought was interesting about it is that you said that they will also conduct tours through faci- the facility, which I think is interesting because you get that educational component as well, and maybe you spark some interest in people for sustainability.
3: Yeah, exactly. And I think in the U.S. West, it raises uh, an important issue related to to wildfire, which currently is mostly just, um, you know, a scary thing that might happen one day. And we aren't given too many, you know, positive examples of, of ways we can harness that uh, that energy, both reduce the risk, but also have a net benefit to society. So we're hopeful that this uh, that these projects will start to raise that uh, that consciousness out there.
0: Um, if, if a system, a typical biomass system is going to be burning dead wood, uh, that's the primary source of energy and it's chipped, et cetera, are there opportunities to take in other fuels, let's say, just like general landscaping material, people are clearing their, their yards or their property uh, on the spring of, 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 material. Do you see that as a, as a supplemental opportunity for some of these systems?
3: Yes, yes, absolutely. So one of our uh, projects in development is over in the Lake Tahoe region. Um, As they experience, you know, more catastrophic fires, they have uh, inspired their local residents. And I think, I believe there's actually a a law on the books to uh, increase the defensible space around Mm -hmm. residential buildings. Mm -hmm. And so as they, as people go out and thin around their yard, yard and thin their their acreage they don't know where to go so they end up going to a uh, local transfer stations, right and they get basically overwhelmed yeah. um so they've got huge amounts of this material coming through and so we are working with a local transfer station there to uh screen and you know basically prepare that material to be used uh, properly in a in what in a biomass uh chp system so that mm. is definitely something yeah, that good. we're looking at
1: And obviously wildfire mitigation is not only huge for mountain towns surrounding us but obviously it's a very big uh, topic in our community and you know we had been we've been talking about this but what would you say is the biggest argument for creating these systems or putting these systems in place to help with that mitigation.
3: well one of the major um, impediments to getting more acres treated and to doing it more quickly is the lack of markets for the the, uh, material so after um once once you go in and thin the small trees and the brush and you but you keep you know in the u.s we're uh being really good about this keeping large trees on the landscape so that they become fire adapted and you know get become larger trees almost heading towards towards an old growth Mm -hmm. condition which is what i think most people want to see Uh, the material that comes out of these uh, projects is really doesn't have much value. It's not large enough diameter to be turned usefully into lumber.
0: Hmm.
3: So there's really not an option there. Paper production has really gone, you know, elsewhere. So it's, it's one of the major costs that the, uh, contractors who, who do these do this work for the forest service have to contend with because the contract will stipulate you need to read, you know, get rid of these piles somehow or other. Um, and that can be chipping in place, spreading it around on the floor of the forest. You can burn it, which is typically what happens. But if they knew that they had a facility nearby that they could take the material to, chip and take the material to, they would uh, gladly do it. And then they could recoup, recoup the cost, which would allow them to get more acres treated.
0: And speaking of cost, and we've got a, a couple more minutes. Um, I know this will vary from state to state, but there's probably some pollution control systems that are co- required, uh, to, to manage and mitigate, uh, smoke and particulate matter that comes you know, out of the stacks and also probably some, um, specific management issues surrounding the ash. Can you talk a little bit about the, the waste product that comes out on either end of a furnace? Sure. Yeah, sure. So
3: you're right. So, um, Well, the first step is modern um, a modern system with computerized controls so that the combustion is clean. And so once you get that part sorted out with uh, clean combustion, then the ash that's um, left and there is particulate in that in that gas stream is primarily an inert uh, uh, mineral. So it's different forms of, of ash. And so what we do is we first uh, pass it through a cyclone that drops any larger particles out and then we pass it through what's called an electrostatic precipitator which essentially is a high voltage electrical field that pulls all the fine ash out of the out of the gas stream so that the uh the the flue gas going up the stack is uh very very clean nothing you cannot visibly see any smoke Mm -hmm. from these systems and so well, uh, when you're walking through these you know towns in the Alps, if you have, you've actually walked past dozens of these and didn't know they were even there because mm. they weren't emitting anything that you could tell. Um so that's the kind of system we're implementing in the u s, kind of starting from the best practices over in europe and and starting with that from as our baseline um and then on the ash, um, the it, those devices I just described have essentially have three forms of ash. So you've got the ash that's from the furnace, which is more like your wood stove ash. Um, then you've got finer levels as you go from the multi cyclone to the uh, electrostatic precipitator. And uh, you can you can land apply the bottom ash. Right. No problem. Just like uh, people take wood ash from their stove, and mm-hmm. put it in their compost pile. It's totally fine. Nothing wrong with that. And then as you go to the finer material, especially up to the electrostatic precipitator, that material probably should be handled um, more like a waste product, since if there's any background um, metals in the soil of your region, it will go into the wood and, and then be uh, you know something you need to capture with that electrostatic precipitator. So the ash from that should be uh, handled like waste, but about 90% can be land applied
0: land applied or or landfilled in any most domestic landfills. And what's interesting um, is that, look, both of those forms of, of pollutants are are um, created when we're doing wood burning, uh, po- burning piles of wood anyway, right? <laughs> we're, we're generating smoke right. yeah. and, and we're generating ash, which is, gets left behind in the pile. So it's not something unusual. It's just that in this case... It's brought to a central location, and, and it's in you know higher concentrations, let's say, higher volumes. Um, but like you say, with good air pollutant control systems, and the technology has been you know around for decades and decades, uh, it it uh, reduces that that smoke, that particulate matter, to near nothing, and the ash is is uh, controlled in a much more a manageable way. So there's there's benefits associated with uh, as far as pollution goes air pollution ash pollution solid waste pollution in having a, a centralized burning system sorry I, I just that's right I'm I just gave you a yeah <laughs> uh, that's so looking Glasser
3: county, uh, county air quality management district which is partially uh, you know the county that Lake Tahoe's in they commissioned a study and showed that um, you know using taking material that would otherwise be burned in slash piles and bring it to a central modern clean facility could reduce the amount of particulate in the air by something like a hundred times yeah since when you're when you're burning a slash pile it's a it's a cool fire it's smoldering it's wet material it's you know burning hot one minute and then smoldering the next so you're getting a lot of smoke and i don't know if you're seeing that locally but even if they work to to burn the piles on the best day and do it in the best way you still end up getting smoke in the community whereas with one of these systems you you wouldn't get that
0: all right we got to wrap up uh andrew uh website for your company yeah it's wisewoodenergy.com simple enough andrew hayden he's the founder of wisewood Uh, i'll learn more about biomass and biomass systems thank you so much for joining us this morning on this green earth
1: Yes, thank you so much, Andrew.
0: Thanks for having me.